Good morning. Try it again. Good morning. Good morning. You guys have your Bibles. Go with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Uh, they, they wanted to get me on stage earlier so that I could have the whole hour and a half to preach. So I uh, hope you're all ready for that. Uh, no, 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 no. We uh, want to change things up a little bit this morning. So uh, if you have your Bibles, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, let's read verse 9 through verse 14. It says, the preacher says this, besides being, actually, I'm, I may have to re refine it. So the text says this, and then we'll talk about who is saying this in a second. The text says this, verse 9, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They, they are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's pray. Father, uh, Father, as we work through these final verses written by your servant, the preacher, Father, I pray that, um, that we uh, would not be weary from the things of this world, we'd not be weary from even the words of this text to the point where we miss uh, the application and we miss the relevance to our life today. Um, Father, I pray that uh, you would give us grace this morning with ears to hear, and Father, that, uh, that I would speak with clarity these words of the text. Uh, Father, uh, Thank you for being gracious to us, and it's in your son's name we pray, amen, amen. So, as we come to an end in Ecclesiastes, I, you know, you know, everybody, I, I know we get to the end of things like this, and I say, all right, we're going to be done in like a week, and then uh, I come back and say, well, we're going to have to do it another week. Uh, that is, this is one of those weeks uh, where I thought we were going to be done this week, and we're not, uh, so we are going to have one final week, final week. Uh, next week, um, and hopefully close up the book of Ecclesiastes and move to somewhere else in God's Word. But for this week, we are going to discuss the last few verses, and then hopefully next week be able to take some major themes and kind of do a, a broad sweep of the book of Ecclesiastes and work through that uh, together uh, next week. So for this week, the theme of the text, I believe, is fear God demonstrating it by keeping His commandments. Fear God, demonstrating it by keeping His commandments. So this, right off the bat, this right off the bat is where all of those deathly afraid of legalism begin to push back. Oh no, we're going to talk about keeping commandments, and we're going to talk about fearing God, and we're going to talk about how we should do everything that is right, and, and so on and so forth. And 
let, me, let me say this. I, I know we come to the text with preconceived notions. We come to the text with, uh, with thoughts already in mind. But we have to begin with what is the text saying and then deal with our feelings and baggage after that. So if we come to the text afraid of legalism, we can't, we can't superimpose our fear of legalism on the text and derive our meaning after we've eisegeted or put our meaning into the text. So we go start with the text, what does it say? And then how does the text then and the rest of Scripture deal with the baggage that we're trying to put into the text? Uh, so I, I too, uh, do not like legalism and, and believe that it is wrong. Uh, but to begin with the text with that in mind, I think is quite dangerous. Because we can miss the point and the power of the text. Because if we're so quick to jump to, well, it's not about doing what's right, it's about grace. Then we can miss what he's saying. Uh, and subsequently end up with what we have a lot of today, and that is Christians who live by grace, which to them means they do nothing that of profit for the kingdom of God. Uh, they live sin-filled lives so that grace may abound, and they miss the fact that God has called us to fear Him, demonstrating it by keeping His commandments. So, um, let me say this as a small piece. This is the importance of understanding um, biblical theology and threads and themes throughout Scripture um, that, uh, that would help inform us in the broader context, or from the broader context of what he means in this passage. So let me ask you a question. Are you tempted in our society to see yourself as autonomous and not all that concerned about our relationship with God and obeying His commandments? Would you consider, would you think of or see the pressure from our society uh, to think of ourselves as separate and not that all concerned with God's commandments? I, anybody feel that pressure? Uh, even within the church context, that it's about grace, so on and so forth. And, which I agree, it is about grace. But uh, Do you think we might be tempted to serve other gods? Family, money, possession, sex, drugs? Which interferes with our adoration of the true God and keeping His commandments? It was interesting, I had a great conversation um, with a friend this past week, I was down in Florida for a conference enjoying flip-flops and t-shirts um, and then flew up to, as Dave articulated, the great white north. Um, I told him as I was flying down from above the clouds coming into Dayton International Airport, it was like clouds. You know how it is, like you can't see anything below the clouds when there's cover? And I'm like, we're like, now we begin to descend and through the clouds and then I look away and then I look back and I'm like, it's all still white. I thought we already flew through the clouds. Uh, it was all this snow covering the ground. Um, it's like five, six inches, something they said at the airport. And I'm going, it's a good thing I wore my tennis shoes home and not my flip-flops. Um, would have been a little cold. But this past week I had this conversation with, with someone, and, I, and I'm, uh, Keller uh, is a Presbyterian pastor, uh, Timothy Keller, awesome man of God who is, said to be, uh, has been called the C.S. Lewis of our day, um, says that we in the church need to not be so worried about, uh, well, let me, let me back up. He says this, he says, 
uh, there are really three options. We typically only think of two options when it comes to life. We think of avoiding God through immorality, or we think of not avoiding God and living through the gospel. He says there's actually three. There's avoiding God by immorality. That's one path. There's living with God and through God in the gospel. And then there's avoiding God through morality. And the danger of morality becoming our God. So taking something that which is good, so we have that which is good, having a job, money, whatever that can be good, and here's God. Well, when we elevate that to be that which is ultimate, that which is more desirable for us than God, that which is more determining for us than God, that which we love and serve more than God, then that then becomes demonic. And so as we think through this and we think through keeping God's commandments, we need to not limit our thinking to just that which we would say is immoral. Uh, sexual sin, those kind of things. It, ki- it might be something that is good that's been elevated to something that is ultimate and therefore has become an idol in our lives. So, do you think we might be tempted to serve other gods? Such as family, money, possession, sex, drugs. Israel failed in this respect. If you remember Mount Sinai, they heard God's law. You should not make for yourself an idol. You shall not worship them. Then a few weeks later, while still at Mount Sinai, they made a golden calf and worshipped it. Throughout history, Israel was tempted to disobey God and worship other gods. We're tempted every day. I don't know if you realize this. Um, we're tempted every day. In the final passage of Ecclesiastes, the editor, and I believe what we have here at the end of Ecclesiastes, I think we have editorial comments. I think they're just as inspired as the rest of the text. But I, don't, I think at this point the preacher has, has done, and in these last few verses is an editor that is, that is ex- ex- proclaiming, exclaiming, or is, is, is talking about what the preacher has just done and give some final closing comments. But, it's interesting, the editor recommends the teacher's reflections, and then he kind of moves into a summary of his uh, writings here. Six times, you guys go back and look at this later, six times the teacher mentions the crucial importance of fearing God and standing in awe of God. Six different times in the book of Ecclesiastes. So basically what happens is the editor selects this major theme and then amplifies it by saying, fear God and keep His commandments. Fear God and keep His commandments. But what we're going to do is we're going to start, though, with what does the preacher or what does the editor say about the preacher? And we're going to kind of fly through this pretty quickly, the first few verses, because I want to concentrate our time on the fear God and keep His commandments portion of this passage. So with that said, the first thing he does is he gives us, the editor, gives us a description of the teacher's person and works, of what the teacher, who the teacher is and what the teacher has done. Again, if you're taking notes, let me encourage you to, to write verse 9, and then we'll hit some points and talk about it. And if you note some application as you go along, that would be valuable for your soul as well. 
But starting in verse 9, he says this, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, waiting, wait, uh, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. So the first thing he acknowledges is that the, that the teacher is wise. The teacher was wise. We have the editor recognizing the wisdom of the teacher. Now that's not all he wants to say, because he says besides being wise, and then he goes on. But I want to remind us something about it when it comes to Old Testament wisdom. When we think of wisdom today, we think of wisdom in a theoretical sense. We don't think of it so much in a practical sense. The Old Testament's primarily concerned with wisdom in a practical sense. It is insight into how to make the most of each day. Does that make sense? Not so much about this theory of what might be good. You know, it's, it's, it's what is practical for today, useful for today. How I live my life, how I, how I live in relationship with my spouse and my kids, how I, how I manage my money, how I view uh, this life. Uh, some of you are familiar with the German theologian in the early 1900s, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said this, To understand reality is not the same as to know about outward events. It is to perceive the essential nature of things. Listen to this. The best informed man is not necessarily the wisest. Indeed, there is a danger that precisely in the multiplicity of his knowledge, he will lose sight of what is essential. But on the other hand, knowledge of an apparently trivial detail quite often makes it possible to see into the depths of things. And so the wise man will seek to acquire the best possible knowledge about events, but always becoming dependent, but without becoming dependent upon his knowledge. To recognize the significant in the factual is wisdom. So the factual, we confuse knowledge and wisdom all the time. They're not the same thing. You could be super knowledgeable and be as foolish as a child. Uh, however, they do play off of each other. But he says, to recognize the significant in the factual or in the knowledge is wisdom. So knowledge does not equal wisdom. To recognize the significant in the factual is wisdom. So the Old Testament gives us a foundation for wisdom. If you want to write this down, Psalm 111, verse 10. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Proverbs 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The source of true wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So it begins there. We like to begin other places, but the text says it begins there. And from there it impacts all areas of our life. So first he says that the teacher is wise. Then the next thing he talks about is the activities of the teachers, the teacher's activities. It's the next line there. The wise teacher did not keep wisdom to himself. So he shares this wisdom. So going on in verse 9, he says, The preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. So the editor tells us that he taught the people knowledge. Taught the people weighing and studying and arranging these proverbs or this wisdom with great care. 
it tells us by weighing and studying and arranging them, that's, that's part of how he taught them. Then he tells us the second way that he taught the people in verse 10. Look with me at verse 10. He says, The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Uh, this is where he became like Joel Osteen and sought words of delight. Um, just kidding. The pleasing words here, pleasing words, does not mean words that make us feel good or words that tickle our ears. What he means is words that are aesthetically pleasing, meaning words that, that are uh, that, well, let me give you some examples of what he means. Think of the poem at the beginning when he talks about the cycles of nature, where he says that the sun rises and the sun goes down. Or think about the, the central poem about the times, a time to be born and a time to die. Or think about the closing poem about old age. He says, in the day when the guards of the house tremble. Remember, he's referring to the hands. Think also of the picture language of the book of Ecclesiastes. Where he says, human life is a breath, a vapor. It has very little substance. It's here one moment and gone the next. Think about last week when he talks about the silver cord is snapped and the gold bowl is broken. Now there's very little feel-good motivational aspect about that. Uh, but it is delightful in the sense that it is, it is aesthetically pleasing. He has used... Uh, and in our modern language, we might use like creative language. It is, it is beautiful language. It is not just dry, simple language. He uses pleasing language. So when he sought to use delightful language, this is what he did. He used these creative words. But he was more than just seeking to use aesthetically pleasing words. He had a serious message to convey. I mean, what he says is very valuable, so his words were also words of truth. He wrote them plainly, honestly, and correctly. So look at verse 10. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So at this point, the editor gives us a proverb in verse 11. He says, the words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Let's talk about that last phrase in there first. Given by one shepherd. The potential, there's a couple potentials here. The potential is that this one shepherd is referring to God. The shepherd who gave these collected sayings could be God himself. These sayings that he's referring to could be God himself. The teacher also said in verse 2, if you want to look back later this week, chapter 2, verse 26, the teacher also said God gives wisdom and knowledge. In Psalm 80, verse 1, David talks about God as the shepherd of Israel. And Isaiah 40, verse 11, Isaiah proclaims that God will feed his flock like a shepherd of Israel. So it's potential. This could be God. I, th I think that's probably a pretty, pretty healthy uh, understanding. It could also refer to the Messiah. Uh, we'll get to that in just a few moments. But let's go to this phrase in there where he says, The words of the wise are like goads. What is a goad? 
When I thought, I thought of like goat cheese. I'm like, goad cheese or something weird like that. What's a, what's a goad? It's a sharp stick in front of the wagon to keep the, uh, the, the cat or the ox from stopping. It's a prod, like a poker. Uh, anybody ever been poked? Right? My, my wife has a finger, and that finger can poke, right? Poke. Except this was meant to inflict probably much greater pain uh, than, than that. It was. It was a, it was a cattle prod. There, they were large pointed sticks that the shepherd would poke into an animal to get it moving and turning in the right direction. That was, that's the goal. It was to, to go poke. Don't go that way. Go that way. I mean, it was to inflict pain, to, to move them along. Uh, goads work because they caused pain. I mean, think about that with a big ox. Uh, ladies, kind of like, like your husband, you know. Uh, it's hard to get him to move in a specific direction. Sometimes you have to poke him. Uh, and uh, you're not going to go up to the ox and reason with it. You know what I'm saying? Like, all right, ox, I would like for you to take one step to the right, one step back, and then take a step forward. Like, he's not going to do that. But you can get him to do it by taking a poke, and, and, and he'll move uh, qu- quickly. <laughs> Sorry, I was trying to do, like, line dancing with the ox, but some of you caught it, some of you didn't. That's all right. So these goads, and he's saying that the sayings of the wise are the same and can likewise be painful. I mean, think about what, think about what we've heard so far in the text and in and, and 12 chapters. It was painful to hear the preacher say that the fate of humans and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. That's, that's like, that's not your best life now. That, that's that's kind of rough. Uh you're going to die. Just like that animal will see the day that it dies, so will you see the day that you die. That is painful. Or, or thinking, as we did last week, on the deterioration of our bodies and how there will come a day where we will no longer rejoice in that or it will be incredibly hard. That is painful. It was painful to hear him proclaim that surely there is no one so righteous as to do good without ever sinning. He says that in chapter 7, verse 20. So these goads sought to spur Israel, that's who this was written to, to spur Israel to action and guide them in the right direction. Parents sometimes use biblical sayings as goads to push their children in the right direction. Proverbs 16.32 says, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Um, you guys recite that to your two-year-olds? I'm just kidding. Uh, but using biblical truth to prod our children along. Uh, another example, Psalm 141.3, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Again, wisdom that, that in, in the, here, and particularly in that verse, is instructing us of the painful reality of the sinfulness of our mouths. And then instruction on how to, practical wisdom on how to respond to that. Asking God to put a guard over our mouths. 
so let's take a step back to that where it says the one shepherd. Uh, we said it could refer to God. It could also refer to, to the Messiah, to Christ the Messiah. Uh, this phrase, the one shepherd, is only used two other times in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel, it refers to the promised son of David, the shepherd king. In the New Testament, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, John 10, verse 11. Let's think about this. Let's think about the good shepherd using words as goads, using words to prod us along. Matthew 7, 15 says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Mark 8, 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Again, words of wisdom used as prods to poke these people along. Acts 23, verse 13 through 14. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So the goads here turn Saul, the persecutor, into Paul, the missionary. But whether this is God he's referring to as the good shepherd or the Messiah is referring to as the good shepherd, the point is still the same. The words of wisdom are like goads prodding you along. And I hope as we've worked through Ecclesiastes that the words of the text have prodded you along. That you can look back and go, wow, I remember this thing and it hurt, but it changed the course of my direction, the course of where I'm headed. Where this phrase here really helped impact this area of my life. Um, just think about that for a second. Any, any pokes from a goad that you have had over the past uh, few weeks? Anybody think of an example? Okay. Family members causing. Okay, what was it that poked you to handle that situation appropriately? All right. So I was expressing, I'll give you an example for myself. I was expressing some frustration to uh, the person I was rooming with this past week, his fellow uh, pastor, friend of mine. And, uh, and he spoke. Uh, I was I was speaking to him about some frustration in my life of recent days, and and uh, he helped me I think see the idol in my life that was causing that frustration, um, and something that was good a good desire that was becoming ultimate in my life, and uh, and helped speak words of truth that guided and prodded me along in that. Anybody else? I know I'm asking you to like admit sin, and I know that that's so rough. But uh, anybody else? All right. Well, let's continue on. Continue on. 
maybe put an asterisk next to your note and your notes right there and go, think about this, <laughs> okay? Consider. Because, here's my fear, if you can't think of anything, that's probably a bad thing, okay? Now, if you don't want to share it, that's probably a bad thing too, um, because sin likes secrecy, but um, at the same time, I understand this is a large forum, so uh, that might be a little awkward, but if nothing came to mind, um, that, I think that's a, uh, that's a red flag, if you know what I'm saying, it's a red flag. Going on, verse 11, so he says, the words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings that are given by one shepherd. Nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. What is he referring to as nails? Nails. What's he referring to there? What do you think? Think of the culture. Think of what, the, what they would use nails for. What do you think? What do you think? Y'all are really talkative this morning. That's good. It's all right. So nails. I think I think nails in this context would most likely refer to uh, uh, the nails or stakes that would hold the tents of the shepherds stable. Uh, you ever seen those big tents that they, they put up and they drive big stakes into the ground so it holds the ropes? I think that's the, kind of the picture here. It's these stakes that would hold the tent firm, that would keep the tent in place, that would keep it from getting blown over or moved or knocked over. And these, so these stakes or these nails uh, firmly planted into the ground keep the shepherd's tent stable. So the collected sayings that he's referring to here Give stability and security to one's life. Think of the stability and focus for our lives provided by the teacher repeatedly pleading that we fear God. Think of the comfort provided by his teaching that it will be well with those who fear God. Chapter 8, verse 12. Think of the security provided by teaching that God is in control and that he has set the times. Think of the stability that that should bring to your life. Chapter 3, verse 2. Think of the focus provided for our lives by His constant exhortations that we seize the day and enjoy God's good gifts. I mean, think about that focus that that brings to our lives. And the stability that that brings to our lives. This is what he's referring to. And like the nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. The teacher himself called the stability and security provided by the collected saints, he called it protection in life. Look at chapter 7, verse 12 of Ecclesiastes. It says, For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So he says very practically, the, the goads prod us to movement in the right direction. The nails firmly fixed provide stability and security to our lives. That's why our, when we are not listening to wisdom, that's why if nothing came to mind where wisdom has been prodding you along in the past few weeks, that's dangerous because wisdom should be guiding aspects of our lives and these collected wisdom provide stability to our lives. 
And then, of course, all the other benefits of enjoying life and, and making the most of it, and those things that, that wisdom would push us and encourage us along to do. So, after this, so after the editor now has given us kind of a description of uh, what the preacher has done in Ecclesiastes, now the editor gives us three commands. He gives us three commands. The first one, he says, beware of any writings beyond these, particularly speaking of wisdom. So verse 12, it says, My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. So in those days and today, there are many writings that were passed off as wisdom. But the editor warns his readers to be careful with those other books. Be careful, because they may not be good. They may not be of God. Beware of anything beyond the collected sayings that God has provided here. That's his warning. Beware of these. Beware of these. Then he gives us another proverb. Verse 12. He says, Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Think about this today. If you guys ever just looked, or maybe from your own reading, just noticed how many books... Um, are produced and published like every day. It's just crazy. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, you know, I've got two or three books on my list that are set to be published this year. Uh, writings, uh, there's a particular writing on coaching other church planters uh, that is supposed to be published later this year. Um, and so writings coming out all the time and, and valuable. Um, I mean, our bookstores are overflowing. I mean, think about people who earn uh, PhDs, essentially end up writing books by the time that they're done. And a lot of them, I know a lot of the professors I had in my grad, graduate work, a lot of their PhDs became books. Uh, they have it on the faculty, like, authorship shelves. <laughs> uh, and a number of them, uh, they, they tend to be more boring than typical books, but... Uh, um, Anyways, uh, yeah, I had a professor write one on Ezekiel, and I couldn't get through it. Um, so the writer here, though, evaluates the activity itself of making many books is endless in the sense of leading nowhere. It is pointless. He says, a much study is weariness of the flesh. So like making many books, much study is pointless. Much book learning leads only to weariness of the flesh. Uh, the teacher wrote early in chapter 10, verse 15, you can look at the toil of fools wears them out. The editor here is seeking balance, just like I think the teacher is seeking balance. So this is not him saying that books are not good, that we shouldn't learn, that, that, that he's, just, he's speaking of a balance uh, to this and the rest of life. So with that, let's move on to kind of his second command, and that is to fear God. Fear God. Verse 13 of chapter 12. It says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. So the teacher earlier urges us to fear God. Let's look at a few of these examples. I would encourage you, if you have your Bible, flip back to chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes with me. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and verse 14. It says, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that the people fear before Him. So again, we're just tracing this theme of fear through the Ecclesiastes. Look at chapter 5, verse 7. It says, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Again, a couple pages to the right, chapter 7, verse 18. It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Again, I understand we're not hitting the context here. We're just tracing through fear. Chapter 8, verse 12, the next example. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. Alright, so we we don't have time to do a a major treatment on fear and, and how that all works, but understand this, to fear God is not to be terrified of God, but to stand in awe of God is the better uh, understanding of that, if you will. There's a healthy fear. It's not, it's not the terrified, but to stand in awe. God is the almighty creator, and we are his mere creatures. God is eternal, and we are a finite vapor. God is sovereign, and we de- are utterly dependent upon him. God is holy. We are sinners. It is only fitting that we stand in awe of the eternal, almighty, holy, creator God. Many of us don't stand in awe of God because our God is this big. He is holy and eternal. He is transcendent, but He has also come here to be with us as well. To fear God is to take God seriously. To acknowledge Him in our lives as the highest good, as that which is only fit to be ultimate in our lives. To revere Him, to honor, worship Him, to center our lives on Him. Acts 17.28 says, For in Him we live and move and have our, what? Our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. We live and move and have our being. This is the God that we fear. There's a healthy fear of God. It's, I think it's interesting because I think next, the editor takes us into how can we show this fear? He says, keep His commandments. Keep His commandments. Among many things, when we disobey God, it shows at least one thing, and that is that we do not fear God. That we do not stand in awe of God. That there is something else that is more desireful to us than the Almighty Creator of this world. We desire pleasure from something that is good, and it has become more desireful than God, then we are showing that we, at the very least, do not fear God. 
So fear leads to following His commandments. The one leads to the other. The attitude of fearing God leads to the action of keeping His commandments. We demonstrate that we fear God by keeping His commandments. If we really stand in all of God, we will seek to keep His commandments. John 14, 15, what's He say? If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. It's plain as day. Moses was already linking fearing God with keeping His commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12 through 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Now there's a whole lot, I mean we could preach a whole sermon on chapter 12, verse, chapter 10 of Deuteronomy. The fact that it's for our good I mean, that's kind of like the, the disclaimer at the end. But, but nevertheless, see the connection of Moses there in that passage between fear and following commandments. Standing in awe of God and following His commandments. So next, the editor underneath this follows commandments gives us two reasons why we should fear God and keep His commandments. Two reasons. The first one, fearing God and keeping His commandments is our essence. It's our essence. It's our essence. Look at verse 13. It says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. What's he say right there? Read it with me. Read it with me. For this is the whole duty of man. Now, Without sounding too much like a nerd, we need to talk about something that's very crucial here. Duty, I think, is misleading in that passage. Duty is not found in the Hebrew word at this point in the passage. It literally reads this. Fearing God and keeping His commandments is the whole of everyone. Not the whole duty of everyone, but the whole of everyone. He's saying this, guys, catch this. It's not just our duty to keep His commandments. It's our essence. It is who we are at the very core of our being. And see, that would be the distinction, I think, largely between legalism and living by grace and following Christ. If it's our duty, then it's about the law and it's about legalism. If it's our essence, then it's about Christ transforming us from the inside out. And if Christ has taken up residence, then the factory will produce these things. The shop will produce this product. If we fear God and we are following Christ, then keeping His commandments becomes the essence of who we are. I don't think duty there is is helpful whatsoever. I think it's misleading. God created us to stand in all of Him and keep His commandments. This was God's design for us. We have to fear God and keep His commandments because that's the way to fulfill God's plan for us. I think that's key. I think that's key. So here... 
he now moves on to a second reason for fearing God and keeping his commandments. He says this, the next point I would commend to you is God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing. Including every secret thing. Read with me verse 14. It says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing. Everything will be revealed. You guys realize? Do we, do we realize that? We'll be held accountable. Let me read you a quote again by uh, Timothy Keller. I referenced him earlier. He says this, Sin isn't only doing bad things. It is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and measuring on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. So about building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. He says, sin is primarily idolatry. Sin is anything that we hold higher than God. And God will bring every deed into judgment. Every deed. And I think to leave it there would be to focus in on the text of Ecclesiastes and to miss how it fits in with the broader context of Scripture. I think we walk away from that going, oh my gosh, like God's going to rain down lightning bolts on me if I do not uh, keep his commandments. And some of us need a lightning bolt rain down on us, I'm not going to lie. I do myself sometimes. But I think the New Testament helps further understand this. This is not saying that what he says here is wrong. What it's saying is we have to understand this passage in light of the whole of Scripture. Um. And the New Testament, I think, helps make some of this a little clearer for this. We should keep God's commandments not because we dread God's judgment. For those of us who are followers of Christ, who are committed, seeking Christ, He is Lord of our lives, we need not to fear His judgment. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus took upon Himself God's judgment for our sins. Do you hear me, Christian? Like, we don't have to fear God's judgment. God's judgment is no longer a threat for those who are followers of Jesus. I didn't say those who are religious people, those who are followers of Jesus. So we... We do not seek to keep God's commandments because we dread the coming judgment. Rather, we seek to keep God's commandments because we desire to do so because the grace of God is transforming us from the inside out. Let me read to you. Anybody know who Martin Luther is? Martin Luther? Martin Luther. All right. Let's see what Martin Luther says on the subject. He says this, If we we doubt or do not believe that God is gracious to us and is pleased with us, or if we presumptuously expect to please Him only through and after our works, then it is all pure deception, outwardly honoring God, but inwardly setting up self 
as a false savior. So when we attribute works or think that our position before God is based upon our works, then we make ourselves falsely into the Savior. Let's look at a couple verses. 1 John 5.3 says this, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. We have to show our reverence and love for God and for His Son, Jesus, by keeping His commandments. Um, I want you guys, everybody, to turn with me, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Everybody said. We're just going to read verse 1 through 10 and talk about it a little bit. He says this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So he's, Paul's for just a moment. He speaks right there of the sinfulness of us all. That we were not just good people without religion, or that we were good people with religion even, he says that we were all dead, and we were children of wrath. We were all dead. And then verse 4, he says, but God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, again, a reminder of the death that we had in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So we were made us alive together with Christ, verse 6, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages we might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And then verse 8, a verse that many of us might be familiar with. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. And then many of us stop right there. The average Baptist, I think, stops right there. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. So let's just draw out a few distinctions here. Look back at verse 8, for by grace. You, it is by grace that you've been saved. 
It is through faith that that salvation has been appropriated in our lives. It has been, been given and, 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 and applied to our lives through faith. Faith in what? Faith in our works? Faith in a church? Faith in a denomination? No, faith in Jesus. Through faith in Christ. And he says, this is not of our own doing, but it is a gift of God. It's a gift. Not a result of works, verse 9, so that no one may boast. We can't do enough good. Instead, it's by grace through faith, and it's a gift. And then verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We were created for good works. I know I'm being harsh, but I can at least speak for Baptists. We tend to stop at 9. We, we stop at 9 because if we talk about works, now we're talking about legalism, and now we're talking about uh, you know, earning our way to heaven and works-based salvation and all that blah, 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 blah. Um, so we get afraid of that, and so then we steer away from God's Word. But he says here, and we just talked about fearing God and keeping His commandments, and here he says, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. For the totality of the good of which we would do. And how? Because we're His workmanship. So who's the one doing these good works, ultimately? What do you think? Yeah, the Holy Spirit through us. God, we are, we are His masterpiece. And so if He is the artist, He is the, the carpenter working our lives, then He's pretty good at that, right? And albeit we may face times that are slow and times that, times that maybe we take a few steps back, but ultimately the trajectory of our life with God should, should be upward. Like God working through us. Again, there, there's going to be times like this, right? But, but is God, God is the one working out this. God is the one that is giving us the grace to keep His commandments. God is the one giving us the grace to move forward, to, to live out this, this life. You see, I don't know if I heard someone else say this. Obviously, it's scriptural, but um, we're, not cre- we're not saved by good works, but we were saved for good works. We're not redeemed by our good works, but redeemed for good works. For keeping these commandments, for living a life that honors God. We're redeemed for that purpose. Um, Sarah and I had a conversation. I'll close with this. Sarah and I had a conversation yesterday um, talking about redemption. And we, just like we tend to limit Christianity to Sunday and to maybe Tuesday night or Wednesday night Bible study, like that's our Christianity, and then the rest of the week is just kind of whatever. That's my secular life. Uh, I think that is a horrid division um, there, I don't think this secular, sacred divide that we have is, is scriptural. Because I think the gospel is not just limited to the redemption of our souls, but also the redemption of our lives, the redemption of our marriage, the redemption of our parenting, the redemption of our workplace, the redemption of our cities. As the people of God are transformed and they live out 
the city of God on earth, that God is about redeeming all of creation. Um, and so when we think about these good works and we think about the commandments that God has called us to, um, let's remember, first of all, that it's Him who's working through us. So how do we then keep His commandments? Again, we go back to Christ. How did Christ keep the commandments of God? It was utter dependence and submission upon the Holy Spirit. Keeps coming back to us saying, God, I can't do it. You do it through me. I'm going to work hard, but it's you doing it through me. So it's not about what I'm doing, but it's about God doing it through me. I'm going to beat my flesh, but I'm going to depend utterly upon the Holy Spirit and submit to His guidance. Now, for some of us, that looks like some subjective, emotional experience of submitting to the Holy Spirit. And I would commend to you that it looks largely like understanding God through His objective revealed self here. And asking the Holy Spirit to understand Him through here and not just some emotional experience, although that serves a purpose as well. So, um, I have two encouragements for you guys today. One, uh, if you're a follower, uh, let me say this too. On your notes, the last three lines we're going to save for next week. Um, it's not because we're running out of time, but because I decided to, uh, to move those to next week. Um, but in closing, two encouragements here. One is, if you are a follower of Christ, okay? So what do I mean by follower of Christ? You have placed your faith in Christ as your Savior, and He is Lord of your life, and you seek Him daily or on a regular basis where you submit to His guidance in your life. Maybe not on everything, but you're working towards that. My encouragement to you is to fear God and keep His commandments. Stand in awe of who God is. And if your God is too small to stand in awe of Him, then ask Him to reveal Himself to you, and then He's going to lead you to this, and you'll get to know this God who is large enough to stand in awe of. Second encouragement, if you are not a follower of Christ, or maybe you're unsure or want to be a follower of Christ, I would encourage you to keep asking questions. But remember this, you've got to ask questions, you've got to ask the right questions to the right people to get the right answer. Um, so I would encourage you, though, to seek God to ask questions, um, to speak to those who you know are followers of Christ. Ask them about this. Ask deep, hard questions. Um, pursue. And I would encourage you, lastly, to ask God to reveal Himself to you, to show His face. So, Christians, I, I want to encourage you to fear God like, there is a healthy excitement uh, when I think of fearing God. I think of, this is a great opportunity. This is the God who has revealed Himself to me, and He has awakened my eyes to see and adore and stand in awe of who He is. But Christians, it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with just standing in adoration. But the next step is following His commandments and what He has guided us and laid out for us to do.
So, I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to continue in worship uh, this morning. Uh, we're going to continue, um, and what I want to encourage you to do is to take these words. We're going to have an extended amount of worship, uh, I mean, the same amount of worship that we tend to have each week. Um, but take this time to reflect on these. If you want to have your notes out during our worship time, and you want to look at that, and, and maybe it spurs something that you need to think through, or uh, I would encourage you to, uh, if you need to get down on your knees and pray, or ask God, where am I, where have I not been faithful? Where have I not stood in all of you? Um, I would encourage you to do that, what, whatever you need to do to, to worship and honor God in these next moments. So let's pray, and the band will come up and we'll continue to worship. Father, I uh, thank you for revealing yourself to us, for not leaving us in the dark. Father, for being rich in mercy. Father, thank you that we don't have to fear your judgment any longer. Knowing that we will still be held accountable for our actions, but positionally we don't stand before you declared righteous because of that which we do. But positionally, we stand before you as righteous and justified because that which Christ did. And so, Father, because of that, because of the work of Christ and the redemption that's happened in our hearts, we get to be your workmanship. We get to keep your commandments. We get to bring honor to your name. And so, Father, as we worship you this morning... I pray that, um, uh, that our hearts would be purified by the doctrine that we are going to sing. Father, that we would know you more intimately uh, than we did an hour ago. And Father, it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you all stand with us as we worship? All stand.